Growing up in multiple countries and spending your childhood experiencing different cultures and languages sounds like a dream. At least to me it does anyway. For my guest Emmy, this was her reality. Growing up between Japan and the UK, thanks to her Japanese mum and British dad, and spending a couple of years in Spain too, all before she turned 18. Emmy chats to me about how formative these experiences were, but also all the ways it wasn't always smooth sailing. There are complexities to living anywhere where you don't look like you belong, in air quotes, even if you were raised there and speak the language. And for Emmy, there were personal challenges too, including her parents' divorce and all the factors that led to her leaving home for good at age 17. Her and I are the same age, but she is definitely someone who seems to have lived an entire lifetime's worth of experiences in a very short amount of time. There is no shortage of interesting stories from Emmy, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. I guess a big theme of this show is around identity and especially like cultural identity and for you um, so you're half Japanese half British and you sort of spent different amounts of your childhood in Japan and also in the UK and then for a couple of years in Spain Mm -hmm. Um, so do you want to talk me through that and just do you remember what it was like as a child growing up (laughs) in such vastly different cultural environments? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been an interesting journey reflecting. I'm 33 right now. So reflecting on the 33 years, including my childhood, I've definitely been blessed in the opportunities I've been given and, and the different countries I've been able to live in. Um, I was born in England, in London. Um, my father's British, my mother's Japanese, and weirdly enough, I meet some people who have no recollection of their childhoods, especially like their younger years. But I have vivid moments. I can still remember when I was two and three and wow. my life back in England and certain memories like parks I used to visit or friends I used to play with, obviously, with my with my parents. And we did the big move to Japan when I was four. So I had been to Japan before visiting my grandparents here. So it wasn't the first time. I think the first time I got on a plane, I was probably not even one. So that traveling and being on the plane and going back and forth was um, not a foreign thing. And four years old, I moved to Japan. And I think I adapted pretty well learning, you know, the Japanese way of living here and, you know, not being too gaijin, foreign, as we say here. I also had a little stint when I was in Fukushima, which is up north um, in Japan. Total countryside. Yeah, the, the same Fukushima where the tsunami Correct, came. yes. The, yeah. the other um, year, that was like 2011, wasn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> over 10 years ago now. But yes, that's Fukushima, which I think a lot of people know, obviously, from the uh, major tsunami. But I was living up in the mountains. And I had an interesting experience there where... Um, living both London and Tokyo being major cities and then suddenly going into the countryside where your neighbors like probably you can't even see your neighbor like we're living on top of the mountain my neighbor is somewhere at the bottom of the mountain situation um you have to walk to school by yourself it's uh eight kilometers there to school and then obviously back so that's 16 kilometers per day and it snows like crazy in the winter like good I don't know maybe 50 centimeters at least, so walking in the snow as well in the winter. I was slaying down the mountain where we used to live. That was another amazing and weird experience. I don't think a lot of people can say, oh, I slayed to school. 
And um, yeah, that was um, my first countryside experience. And then back to Tokyo after a year. And then um, my parents went through a separation and divorce during all of this. And I end up in Spain for two years out of all places and England and then back to Japan from 17. So I've kind of been back and forth, three different countries I've lived in. Yeah, it's been a a whirlwind. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I have a couple of really superficial questions. So firstly, and I know I think a lot of people listening to this will probably wonder as well, and I did ask you when we did catch up uh, the other day, but so you spent some time in Japan, um, you're half British, um, and you do have a slight British accent, (laughs) but you've also got a little bit of an American twang, and I'm wondering, does that come from your international school education in Japan? Oh, my accent is always a topic of conversation. <laughs> um, it's terrible. I've got to be. I've got to be honest, and and I'm sure there's some people who've known me for a while thinking this girl never seems to have the same accent when I speak to her. I'm a chameleon. I'm going to be honest. I I and I also think it's not a good thing. I personally don't think it's a good thing, but I tend to mimic what I hear. I do have a British accent. I will own up to that. I do have it. I am I am half British. It definitely comes out when I'm back in England and speaking to my friends back there or family members. And there are certain words, which I know I talked to you about before, certain words like can't. I cannot say the can the American <laughs> way. So there are moments in conversation when suddenly people are like, oh, wait, are you British? And I'm like, yeah, I, I am British. And they're like, oh, I thought you were American or Australian even sometimes is the other one that comes up. But being, you know, living in England and Japan, and then the the um, English education here in Japan is actually heavily weighed more to the American English. That's definitely played a role. And the international schools I've been to here in Japan, one of them was a British international school, so very British, but then another one was very Americanized. Mm. And then now I'm working for a Canadian company, so that's not playing into the mix because Canadians <laughs> are totally on a different spectrum with spelling. It's kind of like in between American and British. So I'm all over the place when it comes to spelling and pronunciation. It, it's it's quite a mess. It's quite a mess. I suppose so having to get used to lots of changing things in your life all the time um, and adapting to different things kind of makes you way more versatile than I guess like the average person maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely <laughs> you've you've said it in a very positive way um, I think sometimes you could say you're lost <laughs> as well in all of it. <laughs> oh dear well going on that theme then did you ever feel lost in terms of your own identity? Um. I don't think I've ever described myself as lost. Um, I'm very proud with my background. Um, I know the whole conversation of, you know, do halves prefer to be called halves or mixed comes up a lot, especially nowadays. But I've never had a problem being called halves. Um, I am purely British Japanese. I don't have any other mix in my background. And I've been very proud of being that mix. I I love the culture from both of my backgrounds and I'm more than blessed to be able to speak both of the language and I think although what I what I would add is I definitely do find comfort in the companion when people speak both languages I do though because I feel like I could express myself to the full capacity and I I know from certain people who only speak one language or only understand one language 
they they tend to ask me like you know why do you mix two languages like is it because if anything you can't speak fully in one language but it's quite the opposite I feel for myself at least I can't you know of course speak for others but I feel like I can express myself in the moment with the exact words I want to use when I use both languages because there are certain words that just don't exist in you know in certain other languages so when I'm with people who understand both I know I could fully just express myself and they would understand me whereas if I'm restricted to one language I obviously have to concentrate and express myself in that language alone and sometimes there are moments where like ah I just want to use that word in English or I want to use that word in Japanese and it just doesn't you know yeah I totally get it because I think the more languages that I have come to learn or at least come to familiarize myself with the more I realize English is actually quite limited in expression Mm -hmm. and the things that you can say in English um and I know that in Japanese for example there are so many expressions and words that you just don't have an English translation for. Correct. And yeah, it just brings so much more color into yep. your life when you know more languages, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I had another <laughs> superficial question. So like, <laughs> since you speak Japanese and English fluently, what is like, is there a predominant language that you prefer like to think in or like to dream in? I dream in both. Sometimes it's just one language. Sometimes it's even mixed in languages. I also think in both. Um, what I have recently, well, I should say recently, what I have realized is I think, I think in certain languages, depending on if I'm reflecting back on something I've learned in a particular language. So let's say maths, for example, maybe you've learned how to do your multiple, you know, multiplying in English or Japanese, then you might rely on that language that you've learned it. So I think that's when I, switch to just one language but I would say I truly do want to say I am fully and completely bilingual but when in the spur of the moment I have to take down a quick memo I do write it in English so Mm. somewhere inside of me probably my English is better but then again for those of you who are familiar with Japanese writing Japanese is you know a pain to be honest (laughs) especially if you're not typing it on a pc or you know on your phone pen and paper in Japanese is terrible so I'm also not surprised I default English (laughs) yeah it's like having to draw like mini pictures every single time exactly (laughs) not not quick yeah and what was your experience like as uh hafu or like half Japanese person in Japan um because I know there is some level of would you call it discrimination against Mm -hmm. people who aren't full Japanese Mm -hmm. um when I first moved to Japan when I was four we were still the rare breed to say you know there weren't a lot of hafu and a lot of the times even you know when you're out in the city people will be like oh my goodness it's such a cute you know cute half baby like half the kawaii kind of you know moments on the streets and it was so rare and I also used to um model since I was an infant and half babies were like the thing back then a lot of half kids were modeling because they looked different and this stigma of like a bit like a doll or you know cuter than fully Japanese children and I think as a child you know especially my early years I didn't really feel discriminated it was more like oh we're different breed you know to say in a weird way but as I grew older 
um, this kind of weird admiration Japanese people have towards mixed children is sometimes excessive. Um, there are times where, especially I think, you know, females are like, oh, I want to marry a foreigner to have half babies or like um, being mixed or from a half background, you you have a better life or you, you're, you know, defined as prettier or better. And I just found that such a weird way of thinking because I've never really tied my my mix to beauty or, you know, advancing in, in life itself. So there's definitely been that. And then there's also another side where some mixed children aren't as fluent or bilingual. And, you know, the moment they see some sort of foreign name mixed into your name, you get that treatment of, oh, you're not from Japan. Like you don't, you're not probably fluent or you can't speak it or you have a weird accent with your Japanese. And I myself, when I moved back to Japan the second time when I was 17, I changed my name. Since my parents divorced, I switched to use my mother's maiden name, which is Chiba, which is a very common name here in Japan. So when people see my name on paper, on an email, they will not know I'm a, I'm a mixed, you know, mixed person because I have a very common Japanese name. And I've opted for that because I didn't want to be treated any differently. And I didn't want them to have this like, oh, this person's not a Japanese citizen or this person doesn't, you know, doesn't belong to Japan. But then again, I also have other friends who deliberately would even put their middle name, for example, to show that they are not fully Japanese. So they kind of get this special treatment of like, oh, that's why your, let's say, business email doesn't sound up to par for Japanese standards. Or, oh, we'll, we'll let you slide for, you know, messing up a certain, you know, way of speaking to us with, with respect in a, in a work environment. So there's definitely a really weird um, scene when it comes to us mixed people working here in Japan and how some people would want to, you know, utilize their mixed background to their benefits and then there's others like me who would prefer to in a way blend in and be kind of recognized as Japanese and respected properly yeah do you recall any amount of conflict that you had in terms of balancing your Japanese identity and your British identity I think I've done pretty well. I mean, thanks to my parents who who brought me up in a you know international environment. When we were in England, um, they'd try and make the household surroundings more Japanese. So Japanese books, Japanese TV, and then vice versa. When we moved to Japan, household was more English with English TV, English books. Um, I don't think I ever battled it. But it goes back to this whole, I think, acceptance thing. And I mean, I know people can't see me right now, but I look way more Asian. I am definitely on the Asian looking side of my British Japanese mix. So blending in here has never been a problem with, again, um, using my mother's maiden name. I have a Japanese name. I look Asian. I've never felt hard living here in Japan. But when I'm back in England... I use my father's um, surname, which again is Smith, so very common. But because I look Asian, I feel like society doesn't accept me as much over there. 
And I mean, London is very international. You know, we have so many Asians, Indians, you know, it's, it is a very international city. But when you step away from the city for a little bit, and I grew up in the countryside as well as the city um, when I was living in England, that's when I feel this whole discrimination actually comes in. And um, I've had people call me names. I've had um, one of the schools, one of the public state schools I went to, I've had people spit on me. I've had people call me certain you know, slur names from back back in the wartime, which, you know, we don't want to be sharing anywhere. I'm just surprised how, you know, even if you speak the language, even if you have a name that is so common, people really do judge you by how you look. It doesn't matter if you, you know, in my case, have a British passport and you're, you know, a citizen, it all comes down to how you look. And the moment that you, that people certain people think that you don't fit in there or belong there that's when either from fear or from insecurity they're ready to judge and attack you so I mean I'm not going to say Japanese people aren't racist either I've had my racist share here but I think for me probably because of how I look I've definitely experienced it a lot more when I'm in England or even Mm -hmm. in Spain when I was living there speaking of Spain Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why did you live in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, it started out, so after my parents divorced, um, my mother, who is Japanese, she does not like living in Japan. She has always wanted to leave this country. She's always loved England. So she wanted to put my sister and I back into the British education system. Packed up everything. We, I was at an international school at the time. Um, so semester changes during the summer. So we had two months summer holiday and she was like, great. I know a friend who lives in Spain. We'll spend the summer holiday there and then we'll go to England to start a new life. Uh, two months in Spain did not, uh, turn out the way we thought. It ended up two years living in Spain. Um, my mom just really liked it there. And, um, I, one month into the so-called summer vacation, I found myself, Enrolled into an international school, uh, Spanish tutor, um, and uh, suddenly calling, and people are going to laugh at this. I say Spain, but it's actually Ibiza. Uh, it's one of the Balearic Islands. I know a lot of people know it's a party island. People do live there. So I'm suddenly calling this uh, beautiful small island um, home. <laughs> what is it actually like there? outside of the partying and the drugs because I think that's what it's most famous for right it is and it's so sad that that's what it's known for um you know of course the island is to be blamed because that's how they've marketed themselves but it is a beautiful island with some amazing locals living there and you know I feel like what the tourists see is only a fraction of what the island has to offer so when you step away from that, the the scenery and the nature that's there and the local network and the food is amazing. I mean, I was only living there for two years and, you know, from age of 11 to 13, it's not like I was fully independent, but it played a massive impact on my life. I 
made some friends who I'm still in touch with to this day. And um, I still consider it my third home. I felt like I grew as an individual a lot there as well and exposing myself to, for the first time, new culture because, you know, England and Japan was already a part of me. So learning something from scratch like a language and adapting myself there was was absolutely amazing experience and I wouldn't change it I don't regret being put in that situation at all do you recall any particularly specific or poignant experiences that you had there which you did learn from my biggest one and I'm still grateful to this day is I've been dancing classical ballet since I was three and I wanted to continue that when I moved to Ibiza and we were looking for a dance school and it was tough because I didn't speak any Spanish. So a lot of the schools were only taught in Spanish. And through one of my classmates at school, we found one dance school who was run, which was run by a lady who actually speaks fluent English. And um, yeah, so I joined the school knowing that I had someone who could support me. And to my surprise, one of my first lessons there after I had enrolled, she came up to me and she said, I'm not going to speak English to you, which I was really shocked because I had enrolled hoping that she could support me. And she said, it's not going to do you any help. Like you, you're living here now. You have to learn Spanish. You have to find your own way and you have a safe environment here. And uh, the other students obviously know you're not Spanish, so they don't expect you to understand everything. But I do expect you to try your best. And if you get stuck, that's when I will help you. And at 11, when someone says that to you, it can be frightening. But I soon learned what a blessing that was. And out of both my sister and my mom, I picked up the the language the fastest because of it. I I put myself out there. I was struggling to say the least. But um yeah, being in that environment, I learned Spanish a lot quicker and I made friends a lot quicker and it was it was a great experience cuz the school I enrolled to was an international school, so I was already kind of in a comfortable environment, but putting myself in this dance school, I was pushing myself. And I learned a lot from that. And there were there were some tough times. I remember we had a big ballet performance. I uh, forgot all my makeup kit, which is which is quite tragic if you if you know what that means. And I, with my very very bad Spanish at the time, was telling one of my classmates from the dance school. And her, she told the other girls, I have three girls doing my makeup and I had another girl doing my hair for me because I was such a mess and I was panicking because I didn't have my makeup with me. And I was so touched that I was able to get to that point with these, with these other girls. And it was a very special moment. Yeah. Mm, Nice. So you spent two years in Spain and then you went to the UK. Correct. um, And then you, I guess you spent high school in mm-hmm. British school? Yes. Or several British schools. <laughs> <laughs> um, I moved back, so age 13, my sister and I, we actually moved back to England um, first. So my mother stayed in Ibiza and we were put into a boarding school where you board with like a family. 
And it was a very interesting school. Um, some listeners might recognize um, I went to a Steiner school, um, which has its own way of um, teaching. They have their own teaching methods. I think the more common one is probably people, a lot more people know about the Montessori methods. So Steiner education is a little bit like Montessori in a way. So their whole curriculum is, I think, a year behind from what the education uh, program should actually be in England. And it's obviously a lot more artsy, craftsy uh, kind of environment. It's a lot of drawing, a lot of art. Um, doesn't matter if you're doing a history class, a science class, there's a lot of pictures and graphs rather than using your words and sentences. So I'm definitely not the best at drawing. So I struggled at the very beginning. I've never in my education ever had teachers saying, more pictures, more colors written in my homework, <laughs> which was shocking for me. So I'm like, more pictures, more colors. Like, what does that even mean? What else could I draw? <laughs> but um, it was a very valuable experience. I was only there for a year, but I really learned that education isn't just one way. There's other ways of learning. And because they have a unique education, I had classes like basket weaving I mean who has ever said you know who can ever say they've learned how to weave a basket from school or we had we had metalworks I've made my own spoon I also had woodwork classes which I made my own uh bowl wooden bowl (laughs) do you not have those classes normally and no not really maybe maybe you have yeah so when I was going (laughs) when I was going through school um especially I guess sort of middle school and the early years of high school so Mm -hmm. I think you call them junior high yeah yeah so we had it was compulsory for every student to learn woodwork metalwork um sewing um like I I don't know if that's part of the curriculum now but it was very much a part of our (laughs) childhood (laughs) I mean it's definitely not part of the education system here in Japan uh we do have like um uh a class where you do learn to sew and to cook that 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 definitely exists it's a kateka class here in Japan but Mm, the other ones was definitely a first time maybe is more common in other English schools but I it was a first for me for sure the only reason why I left was just because the education system was different and then further down the road if I had want to go back to Japan or you know go into university here in Japan my mother was slightly concerned like would it be enough and So I transferred to a public state school and that was the first time I went to a public state school in England and that was like a completely different scene. It was, I think the first time I noticed how different households are because, you know, being in international schools, you're relatively mixed with the wealthier people. Ibiza... Yes, there's the locals, but again, I went to another international school, which means I was mixing myself with rich locals or a lot of rich Germans and Dutch families, actually. And then coming to the uh, Steiner school, 
again, this is a private school, so people relatively have money. So suddenly here I am at a state public school in England in the countryside, and you have classmates who clearly are struggling. They they live um they live at houses that are provided by the government. They have, you know, government support. And you can also see by how, you know, people's uniforms are. And then there's other families who are more on the wealthier side and they live in this beautiful house in the countryside with, you know, front and back lawn and, you know, big two, three-story houses. You mentioned when you were going through your school, so the first school you went to when you moved back to the UK and sort of the different learning style, you actually started university later when you were back in Japan, right? But then it sort of didn't like suit you. And so you left. Like, do you think that if you had had a more, I guess, in air quotes, traditional education, do you think that you still would have made that choice? Or would you have thought, oh, like, I need a university degree and in order to get a job at an office, blah, blah, blah. Like, do you think having that sort of alternative education helped you a bit more to think differently about your future? I don't know if it's tied to my experience at the Steiner School at all. Um, So I graduated high school here in Japan. I finished my final year over here in Japan after moving back at 17. I took a gap year because I didn't get into the university I wanted to. And then I got into a different university the year afterwards. And as you said, I dropped out after a year because I felt like it didn't really fit what I wanted to do and I think the first thing that ran through my mind when I was contemplating on dropping out was how is society gonna look on that and because here in Japan everyone goes to university the reason why people wouldn't go is either grades or money so if you clear those two categories most people go to university So here I am, I'm already enrolled, I'm actually already going. So when I first told one of my close friends at university at the time, she was like, why would you want to quit? (laughs) Like, people don't really drop out when they're already enrolled, you know. And like you said, she brought up the point of, don't you think it's going to affect your career in the future? And trust me, I was scared, you know. In Japan, everyone looks at what university you graduated. The better the university, of course, the better the job and the more networking you get from it. But the reality was I had moved back to Japan myself when I was 17. I lived with my grandmother, so my mother's mom. Um, When I first moved back, I moved out after I graduated high school. So I've been living by myself since I was 18. And I was paying my own way through university. I mean, thankfully, I had some support from my grandfather who passed. He he kept some money aside for me if I wanted to go to university. So that was helping me. But I was still working and studying. So doing this dual life. And it got to the point where I actually collapsed at school once because I was exhausted. The doctor was like, you need to make a decision. Are you going to be a student or are you going to work? Like, you clearly cannot live this dual life any longer because you're putting your, you know, your health at risk. And 
I thought about it hard. And to be honest, I kind of just felt like the money was a waste. Because I was, you know, doing the payments, I could tell how much it was costing. And I also didn't feel like I was actually getting what I wanted from the university. I was taking these extra classes for credits, which weren't even tied into the course that I was enrolled in. So I'm learning about Japanese law and the children, like the birth rate decrease here in Japan, which had nothing to do with my major, which I was actually trying to major in Spanish. So I was like, why am I paying when I'm here learning about something I don't even want to learn just to get credits to graduate? So after the first year, I sat down with my grandmother and I told her that I was thinking of quitting. And to my surprise, she supported me. I actually thought she was going to say, you know, hey, you might as well, you know, grind through it and I'll support you and it's important. But she was like, it's your choice and I trust you. You're you're an adult. And if you don't think this is what you want to do, then you'll, uh, you know, you'll figure it out. And I support you with the decision. But things might be tough because Japan's just the way it is. After I quit, I don't regret it. I've never had a moment where I regretted it. As for my career, I've only had one job where it was an issue. Like I couldn't be promoted because I didn't have a university degree. The funny thing was um, the company that I had the the issue with when it came to my um, educational background was actually a foreign company of all, of, of all things. And I had been at the time been working there for two years and they wanted to promote me. They found out I didn't have a university degree. So they said that they couldn't promote me. And they asked if I wanted to go back to school, which I did not. Um, four years into the company, they were like, well, if you did go back to school, it's already four years, you could have graduated by now, which for me was like, well, you had two years to change your company policy. You could have, you know, promoted me. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the only time I had an issue until um, other than that, I've had maybe seven different jobs, eight different jobs now, and I've, I've never had an issue. I mean, sure, I'm, people probably look at my CV when they're hiring me and it might be affecting me in ways I'm not sure, whether it be payment or status, but it's never been a point of conversation of why don't you go back to school or why did you drop out or we can't hire you, you know? So what did you do straight after you stopped going to university? I was juggling three different jobs and I was working so hard. I only had Sundays off and the preschool job was from like seven or eight in the morning and then I'd go to another job at the afternoon and then I switched out jobs and I was doing that for maybe three, four years, just juggling different jobs and trying to save up and maybe trying to prove myself in a way just because I dropped out of university that I can work like this is this is what I got to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So were you working towards a specific goal or why were you working so hard? I think it was partly because I wanted to prove myself and partly out of fear. And when I say fear, um, since my parents divorced and then moving out of my mother's house at 17, 
I don't have a strong connection with my parents. And um, my grandmother was pretty much my only closest family member. And I didn't want to be a burden for her because, you know, she doesn't have to raise me. She's already done that with her two kids. So after moving out, of course, she's she was always looking out for me. But I had this strong urge that I need to stand on my own two feet. I don't have anyone to lean back on. I don't have a home to go back to. Like if I don't pay the bills, no one else is going to pay the bills. And if I don't pay the bills, I don't have a place to go you know, back to like my home. So I think that fear of if something goes wrong, I don't have anyone to lean on was definitely my, my, my drive. Mm, it's a significant motivator when you don't really have a plan B, mm-hmm. when you don't have anything to fall back on, right? Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times now that you moved out of home and started living on your own since you were a teenager, so mm-hmm. 17. Um, can you talk to me about the story behind that? So what led up to it and why and how you made the decision to move out at such a young age? Well, I think with the upbringing I had, I definitely learned how to be independent at a very early age. And then my parents' divorce played a big part of it since now being an adult and reflecting on their divorce it must have been a tough time for them as well now because I know what love is and heartbreak is and you know being in and out of relationships myself divorce is not easy on anyone and there's always fault in in someone or something by the time um being a child I was really stuck in the middle of their divorce. It's an international marriage. When people get angry, suddenly two people who are able to communicate are not able to communicate. And a lot of the communication fell through me like as a, in a way, uh, interpreter. So I saw a lot of the ugly sides, the arguments, the phone calls, the yelling and the depression and heartbreak. And it got to a point where I really resented both of them for putting me through this. And I drifted away from my father when we moved to Ibiza. And then my relationship with my mother was also not good because my personality is a lot like my father, apparently. So she obviously saw a lot of him in me, which does not help because she just divorced this guy, right? (laughs) So we would argue constantly um about small things to big things and I mean not to try and make myself sound good but I wasn't really a bad kid I had okay grades I was pretty obedient I didn't do anything bad I've never just disappeared pretty good to say myself but I just seem to always you know butt heads with my mother And it just got to a point when I was 17 and we had another argument, literally two days after my birthday, my 17th birthday. And it escalated and got to a point where she, as maybe some people do, they get very emotional and she screamed for me to leave the house. And something snapped inside of me and I was like, why don't I just leave? (laughs) Why am I putting up with this? Why am I torturing myself? And clearly it's torturing her as well. And I just packed my bag and she, she obviously, I think that 
aggravated her even more because I was acting on it. And she took it to the point was like, if you're leaving, leave the house key. And I left the house key behind and walked out. And I've never gone back since. I've never lived under the same roof. I have, yeah, just been on my own in a way since then. It was a, it was definitely a turning point. Have you seen her since then? I have. I have tried um, numerous times to try and rebridge that connection. You'd be surprised how many opinionated people are out there. You know, there's the whole but she's your mom and you can't cut family out of your life. But sometimes if someone is really toxic in your life, regardless of being a family member, you've got to do what's right for you. And at that age, at 17, for me, I just knew it was the best for not just myself, but for her as well, because we were just unhappy. We were really unhappy. And I wanted to really start living my life. I didn't want to be dragged into her drama. I didn't want to be changing my names every time she remarried. I didn't want, don't get me wrong, I, you know, I enjoyed my my education and living in different countries and the opportunities that were given to me, but they weren't my choices. At the end of the day, it was her choices and where she wanted to move to, what life she wanted to have. So yeah, I I wanted to just start living life for me. And I've tried to reconnect. I've tried to rebuild that that foundation. But I think when we get to a good point, there's always some reason that she she brings it all back down, breaking my trust or hurting me again or it being something we just can't be on the same page. And I'm sure I rub her the wrong way as well. So we we just we just don't blend. Do you hold any hurt or resentment towards her because of that experience? I think I did a lot more when I was younger to both of my parents. Um, this is going to sound dark, but um, even there was a point in my life where I I know I said to my sister that if my father died, I wouldn't miss him. It, it got really dark to that point. And I mean, I can't take it back how I felt back then but I of course don't wish death on anyone and that was how I was coping with my emotions back then as a child now I just I'm at a place where I'm at peace I just wish the best for both of my parents um if they're healthy and they're happy with their life and how they're living it that's that's the best I can ask for because that's what I want to you know wish upon anyone if you're happy and healthy and you're doing what the things you love then great. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other sort of parental figures in your life since the relationship with your parents is so estranged? My grandparents on my mother's side, for sure. They played a big role um, since the separation came in. Uh, we'd, we, as in my sister and I, uh, we'd stay at my grandparents' house a lot sleepovers, weekends. My grandfather was the first one who took us on, you know, Hawaii trips and Guam trips and, you know, those summer spring vacations. He would, he would spoil us. He was definitely the one spoiling us and taking us away. And after he passed away due to cancer, it was my grandmother. She, she supported me in everything, everything I did. And 
she was like my best friend. I mean, I know some people don't have that relationship with their grandparents. Some people, you know, don't even see them on a regular basis, but she was someone I really looked up to and she made me feel like I can tell her anything. I tell her like boy stuff and <laughs> work stuff and I could I could talk to her about anything. And the time that I lived with her after I moved back to Japan, um I mean we were roommates. Like <laughs> you know, I was living under her roof uh, we'd we'd plan dinners together, we'd stay up and watch shows together. And I really appreciate how she supported me. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. I mean, come on, think about it. She's at that time in her 60s probably and I'm talking about my friends and colleagues I remember she actually had a piece of paper in her room with all these people I talk about like a list so of names <laughs> exactly so she would have categories of like this is Amy's work colleagues and like a list of names and who they meant to me or my old school friends because I talk about so many people and she just couldn't keep up, but she wanted to be part of the experience. Mm. So she'd write them down and then she'd bring that piece of paper so she could keep up with my conversations. And it's just those small things that, you know, she, she was like my biggest supporter, really. Mm. Yeah. Did you, did you ever have conversations with her about your parents? Yeah. Um, she knew what was going on. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I moved back to Japan was when I had left home. As much as at 17, you think, you know, you're you're all grown up and you can face the world. You're still a kid. <laughs> Reality is um, there's only so much um, independence I had. I was surf couching for a bit. My uncle helped me out for a little bit. And I ended up living with a family friend for a while who who to this day is like an uncle figure to me. And I'm I'm still very close with. But it got to the point where my grades were being affected because of my, you know, lifestyle and not having a stable place. And um, my teacher called me out on it and said, if your grades keep on falling, you're not going to be able to go to the universities you want to. And that was a wake up call for me. And I was calling my grandmother about it. And she she said, you know, if you want to come back to Japan, you can always live with me and you can you can always graduate school here with me, uh, you know, here in Japan. And I was conflicted. I was really conflicted because I, at the time, I really enjoyed my life in England. I was also um, uh, in a long distance relationship with my then boyfriend in Spain. And we were well, I should say I was really happy. I can't speak for him at the time, but I was really happy in the relationship. But the funny thing was my boyfriend back then, um, his mom was actually the eye opener of this whole story. So I was back visiting him in Spain and um, I was sitting down with his mom and she knew about the situation as well. And she had a heart to heart with me and said, you know, you're 17 and how, how much more realistically are you going to able to live the life that you're living right now? And she said, I know that you care for my son and I've seen you two, you know, spend time together. But what is it? What is it that you want to do with your life? And, you know, 
if you, if you and my son are meant to be, you're meant to be, you'll find out of the way, but you need to take care of yourself right now. And you're still young. And if it means that you have to move to Japan, then maybe that is the option that you need to take. And you can always come back to England or to Spain even. And shockingly, her, her words really convinced me. I had a good thought about it. And that's when I decided to move back to Japan. It sounds like you've had quite good guidance in mm. your life in those kinds of ways. Do you think that really helped you to build up your resilience? Because I like I, I know you enough to know that you're very independent and you're very <laughs> um, like strong minded. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously through your all of your experiences, you're very resilient. So like, I guess the question is like, where do you think you found all of that from? Especially with all of these experiences, I think it'd be quite easy for people to succumb to the pressure of it all. Whereas mm-hmm. it seems like you've really grown and learned from it. I'm just going to say that I've been lucky with the people who who have been in my life. I've, I've really been lucky with Whenever there has been moments, I've always had someone kind of nudging me in the right direction or making sure that I don't derail. Um, as you said, it's easy, I think, with the experience I've had to go down a completely different path. But I never went down there because I've been blessed with the people in my life. And whether that be my, you know, my ex-boyfriend's mother or my grandmother or be teachers, you know, even that, you know, dance teacher back in Ibiza is also another person, you know, I've, I've had certain people have my back and maybe at the time I never noticed it, but looking back now, I can definitely pinpoint those individuals and I remember them very clearly and I'm, I'm very grateful for their existence whether I'm still in touch with them or not. Hmm. Do you think that there might be a point in the future where your relationship with your parents can be repaired? I mean, I'm not going to say never, you know, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, I might change how I feel if I become a parent myself. I'm currently without child and not married. So I'm sure there's certain elements that you can only understand when you're married or when you have a child and what that feels like from being a parent. So I can't say never, but at this current point, I, I'm living the way I am, you know, not having them play a big role in my life because that's keeping me healthy, Mm. my, my mind healthy because being with them brings out a toxicity in my life and that's not good for me and I don't think it's good for them as well yeah I think there's a lot to be said around even though they are I guess by blood your family Mm -hmm. um, the relationship if the relationship is not helping either side um, Mm -hmm. then what's the point yeah what about going forward so um you mentioned when you were at university it wasn't giving you the things that you were wanting and I guess I'm just curious to know like is there something that you are working towards 
I think that's one of the really hardest questions I anyone can really ask me because when people ask about goals, I kind of get stuck. If anything, I'm very jealous when it comes to certain people who are like, this is what I want to do and this is what I'm working towards and this is like my five-year plan. I'm like, how do you, how can you even come up with that and how, like, the direction and drive you have for that is just amazing. And that might be tied to the fact because I'm living, you know, day by day trying to, I mean, I don't want to use the word survive because there's certain people who are really trying to survive, but, you know, I'm I'm just trying to feed myself, pay my rent and, you know, save up and build my own little empire. And it's funny because I work at a company right now that strongly believes in vision and goals and it's a topic that comes up ever so often and we have exercises and and workshops around it and yet I still struggle I'm like you know pen and paper in front of me I'm like what is my vision and goals like where do I want to be at in five years and ten years but what is clear for me is I'm Maybe because of the background I have and the experiences I have, I I constantly want to help people. It's, it's just part of my nature. I know a lot of people have helped me in my life to come to the point I'm at right now. So if there's something that I can give back, you know, I want to be that person. Yeah, and I guess... Not everyone needs to have like a five to ten year plan. Like, it's just <laughs> <laughs> If it's not like important to you or like if the vision isn't quite there then that's totally okay as well I definitely think we've kind of put too much importance on being super disciplined and like having those goals and having your life mapped out because as as you've shown and sharing your story like some things just don't go to plan and like life can go in any direction really (laughs) And I think when when people ask for goals, sometimes they're expecting like this big answer or some, maybe at times like career driven or achievement based goals. And maybe my goals is getting married and having a kid and having my own dream home. But how many people are going to be happy with that answer? Because it's maybe not grand or, or flashy enough, but that that is my next like you know very clear goal is I do want to get married one day I do want to have kids one day I do want to become a mom and that's something that I do hope happens you know five years down the road yeah and it's really what will make you happy right yeah yeah Yeah. awesome okay well thank you so much for sharing your story um it's been such a delight um because even though (laughs) even though we were like in like the same fitness group and everything in Japan, we didn't really actually have that much time to actually talk to each other. Weirdly. Yes, it's, it's true. Um, we were too busy doing burpees. We, we were too busy doing burpees. Um, at, at the fitness community, I, I don't think I really share this side of me. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people know me for playing my EDM music and yelling, <laughs> yelling. commands. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yelling commands is is how a lot of people know me. It's like, oh my gosh, like what is she doing to us? But you know, that it just shows everyone who comes to that community as well. I'm sure everyone has a story, and sometimes you just need to take that time to sit down and 
and ask some questions like you did with me today. And I'm, I'm very appreciative that you've given me the opportunity to share a portion of my story. There's plenty more episodes for those who want to want to hear more and get to know me more. But I appreciate this opportunity and uh, letting me letting me share a little bit about who who I am. Thank you as always for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did having it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Emmy and getting to know her better beyond all the squats and burpees from the fitness community we're a part of in Tokyo. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and subscribe and follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Mm-hmm.